0: Hello again, and welcome to another episode of Human Rights Magazine. For this episode, I was very pleased to speak with an exceptional guest, Sharon Burrell, head of the world's largest trade union federation. The International Trade Union Confederation is acknowledged to be the global voice of working people. I asked her if we could begin with her thoughts on what is meant by peace and what is needed for conditions of peace.
1: We have a frame that is indeed uh, our common security. And if you look at the preconditions for people to want peace, to be content with their lives, to actually have trust in a secure future, then you have to have uh, the, the conditions for peaceful existence that go to a sense of common security. So what creates the tensions for war, it's exclusion, it's people feeling like uh, their land is threatened, their economic future, their jobs uh, are threatened, they have no social security, so it's a survival day-to-day prospect. If, in fact, people have what we call a secure social contract where they have jobs, they're decent work based on rights, if there's universal social protection, if you have equality, not just of income but gender and race, which leads to a sense of inclusion, then it's less likely that people will, in fact, even consider others as their enemy or indeed uh, be, uh, you know, uh, committed um, to to the, the notion of war, even where leaders may decide they want to uh, militarise the environment for their own power play. So in that context, yes, military, um, uh, militarization is a threat, but so too is the lack of uh, the social uh, security that people need broadly defined as our new social contract or, or the social contract. And in, this, in today's age, of course, we call it a new social contract because we've seen the breakdown in the world of work. We have massive uh, uh, insecurity in a broken labour market. With 60% of workers now working informally, no rights, no minimum wage, no rule of law. And of the 40% of people who are in formal jobs with some kind of employment contract, a third of those are increasingly insecure and that number's growing And uh, because they're short-term contracts or casual or um, part of a new uh, technological frame of platform business where, again, you have no rights, no often no, no social protection, but... Increasingly, of course, no guaranteed uh, living through a decent wage as well. So I think if you go back to for 40 years, we've seen labour income share plummet right throughout those four decades. That's been an an underpinning of insecurity as well as the breakdown in secure jobs, which has increased the amount of informal work. But in addition to that, you've also got a military buildup where while we were optimistic three decades, four decades ago, maybe five, of uh, the retreat of nuclear warfare, the NPT um, or the Nuclear Proliferation Treaty, and more recently the, um, the Ban Treaty, the TPNW, then nevertheless, you've seen fewer and fewer governments prepared to in fact uh, stick by those commitments. So we now see the uh, the very real risk that the ban treaty will never be realised unless there is um, demands from society and, of course, the NPT under review but also at risk when you look at you know, some of the the buildup of nuclear weapons around the world. So no one could say that the conditions or the preconditions for peace exist right now, and you would know that we have more conflicts in the world today than we've had since World War II. So if you take a really good look at it, even leaving out the current tensions on the Russian-Ukraine border, then we've never been closer to the eruption of war of, of large-scale war on top of the existing uh, numerous conflicts that we see in too many parts of the world today and then in addition it's not just land it's actually water and energy that is now creating preconditions for war amongst people as well
0: if as you've indicated there is widespread failure of government how can we move forward in an earlier episode in this podcast series with John Morrison, he indicated that he was hopeful with the rise in the corporate world of an ethic of social and environmental responsibility. I can't say that I share his optimism, but how do you feel about the failure of government?
1: Well, it's a failure of governance as much as a failure of any individual government. We've seen an economic model has that's... Demonst- that's um, dominated the world now with the notion that, uh, you know, trade liberalisation and trickle-down economics would mean everybody, you know, the whole notion that you'd lift all boats if um, indeed uh, profits continue to simply be uh, be made. But we've seen that create massive inequality. And indeed, you know, for wealthier and wealthier corporations, and that means countries dependent on those wealthy corporations, then a lot of the trade relationship has been based on exploitative um, uh, supply chains that simply meant we were producing in the south indeed for the north. So that, of course, has started to and will continue to change with technology, but not necessarily from a base of shared prosperity so we are seeing more and more nations fearful across a whole range of indicators of that uh, of of insecurity or the breakdown in the economy and society. Where business leaders uh, are looking to move to stakeholder value and shift away from the shareholder primacy that's dominated that profit take, then that's a good thing. But unfortunately, it's a a small layer of business leaders at the moment. And if you look at the criticism of them from particularly the US right, then you see right-wing or conservative politicians who are now attacking those businesses using terms like woke business as if it's uh, some sort of crime. And, you know, while at one level to see business being attacked is a relatively new phenomenon, On the other, you've got this uh, relentless attack by conservative politicians that is at best undermining their own futures in terms of the world they'd want to see where wealth is in fact accumulated by the few and not the many. So, you know, we have have market failure wherever you look. We just don't have the... uh, the consensus yet around solutions except on some issues you know broadly speaking now the world knows that our um, environmental future is not secure that we have to deal with climate change and yet when you look at the tensions between that realization and the corporate uh, you know lobby from fossil fuels from gas in particular at the moment from everywhere in terms of, you know, maintaining the status quo or investment that is interested in maintaining the status quo, then we see the risk of failure on that front indeed uh, has to be rated very highly as well. I'm an optimist by nature, but you actually need to make sure that people feel included and secure and optimistic before you can uh, secure the trust in in democracies, which for us is the only uh, governance system that can actually deliver, again, a social contract and security to people without uh, the risk of uh, of exploitation or exclusion or oppression or whatever words you want to put on it.
0: In terms of government intervention, What degree of hope do you see in the expansion of legislation for responsibility in the supply chain? For example, the legislation on due diligence in the European Union and in countries like France, Germany and Australia.
1: Well, these are fundamental. We need a raft of new legislation. One is to hold both uh, corporations and indeed investors to account for fundamental human rights. There's no question that unless we can do that, we can't change the business model. But it has to be more than simply another report where you assess risk, and the risk in this case of human rights violations um, versus uh, assessing financial risk or environmental risk. But, again, unless you actually look at the three pillars of the UN guiding principles being um, risk, grievance and remedy, then without the grievance procedures at all levels of of corporate structure and the capacity for people to engage with, uh, you know, due process and rights in order to effect remedy, then we will simply see more reports and. and uh, indeed less uh, less fundamental change. The the legislation around modern slavery, we've welcomed, we've campaigned against modern slavery, um, you know, for decades, but we've really made it a focus uh, since uh, um, I took over this job and we looked at some of the developing economic models in the Gulf states and other areas. And so we welcome that legislation, but again, on compliance, It's inadequate. If you look at the French vigilance law, which is more broadly based across all of uh, the areas of human rights violations, again, compliance is weak. With the German law, we still need broader scope as it moves into the European uh, uh, legislation and and deeper and, uh, and more rapid forms of compliance and or sanctions where compliance is not met. So if we're going to legislate and change the economic model, then we have to make sure that it has teeth. And I think that's the biggest challenge right now. But the legislation in Europe is vital. And, yes, it is an optimistic piece if we can move to put a floor of fair competition under the um, various uh, production and uh, distribution and sales uh, ambitions of corporations but it needs to be broader than just rights for a trade unionist of course fundamental human and labor rights are everything but it also has to be environmental and it has to capture investors because while you've got investors still driving models of profit at any cost then you're not going to shift the dominant model of business today
0: You've spoken about governments and about corporations. There are two other main groups in global affairs, international institutions like the United Nations bodies and the IMF, and there is civil society. What are the roles for either of those groups?
1: Well, multilateralism is both essential, but in today's frame is in, in crisis. If you were, if you look at uh, the UN structures, then there's no doubt that Guterres is driven you know, a leadership that's based on a value set and a practicality of um, moving towards the stability and the inclusion of the SDGs by 2030. You know, the SDGs with the Paris Climate Agreement are certainly a pathway towards, uh, you know, a zero-poverty, zero-carbon world. But unless we move very quickly, then we are not, going to reach the ambitions of either the SDGs or doing more than half of the climate uh, job we have to do to stabilise the planet. So we are in this uh, this moment where multilateralism should be the framework for coherence. But if you look at the crisis in the WTO, if you look at the lack of the trust uh, in the, um, in the World Bank or indeed the IMF, despite the very human and courageous leadership of uh, um, Kristalina at the helm, then nothing much has changed. The same fundamental value set that drove the Washington consensus is still there. The conditionality on IMF loans are still there. So there has to be an acknowledgement that we need different uh, a different model of an economic future or models, and we need different multilateral frameworks to actually support them. So while the UN's battling to put, uh, you know, the approach that we all need around jobs and social protection, around peace and development, and many other areas, uh, including climate and the SDGs in place, it's undermined by the very nature of the Bretton Woods settlement and the WTO that is still fighting for a a traditional model of economic futures that has in fact created the massive inequality and of course now the breakdown in trust amongst people that governments and governance generally can be uh, um, uh, relied on to provide both a secure future and the resilience against personal and or global shocks.
0: And where can we fit as citizens and as consumers?
1: Well, as citizens, you know, we've got battles ahead of us that have been, you know, fought and won by our our predecessors that are now very much at risk. If you think about the social contract post-World War II, and, of course, it didn't ever deal with a just development model for developing countries... But for the OECD nations, it did generate jobs. It did uh, indeed uh, support institutions like the ILO to set a global rule of law around labour rights. It did promote, um, you know, wage distribution through minimum wages and collective bargaining. Those things are very much at risk right now. And, of course, social protection, was uh, the, the fundamental basis of the growth of wealth and equality in countries like the Nordic countries, in my own, in Australia, but, and, and uh, of course, across Europe generally. But there, that's been very much under attack. And when you think that now only 55% of people have some form of guaranteed social protection, and there are many holes in that, but 73% of people have little or no social protection, then there is no resilience base which would allow people to feel the security. So if you take COVID-19 when the the economies were shut down, then we had uh, 1.6 billion people around the world who rely day-to-day on um, income daily income for survival, that's taken away because they can't work or there are no customers and you can see the impact of that. So that's the situation we are trying to repair, but it has to be rebuilt, not on the same model. It has to, in fact, be built on a model that does look to inclusion, that does look to security of employment, that does look to economic and income security. And, of course, the elements of shared um, uh, security that fit into that, education, health, childcare, aged care, they have been exploded in terms of, uh, you know, the the depiction of the underfunding of our social services, our public services, that people have been, you know, Campaigning around for years, but again, relying on a corporate model, not on investing in people and sharing our wealth, has brought us to the point now of the breakdown in the social contract and the resulting breakdown in trust. So that's on the social side of it. But if you look at also the fact that governments around the world have been rearming, have been investing in increased militarization, then we have the two you know, critical levers for peace absolutely undermined to the point where the world is indeed a heartbeat away from major conflicts.
0: Given this disturbing trajectory, where do we look for hope? How do we turn things around?
1: I believe in the power of people, otherwise I wouldn't do my job. And it's people who have fought um, oppression, in all forms, who've brought about change, who've built the, the societies that where we share prosperity through social protection, where we're committed to employment and we must go back to being committed to full employment, we're sometimes a very different definition of work. And, indeed, we absolutely need to be serious about equality and inclusion. If we continue to include women or people of different races or colour or religions or ethnicity, then we are creating the barriers between humanity that actually generates a condition for conflict. So, I, movement, people building, the values that are enshrined in the Human Rights Declaration, but our own sets of values shared around democracy, around inclusion, around equality, these are the things that on a right for, with a rights-based future will rebuild that sense of a common security.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of Human Rights Magazine. The podcast is brought to you by the Upstream Journal. I invite you to consider supporting the program and the magazine with a contribution through PayPal as you explore other episodes.